Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with a new round of sanctions against Russian oligarchs and their families announced today by the White House and speak with Dr. Louise Shelley, the Omar L. and Nancy Hurst Endowed Chair and the University Professor at George Mason University and a University Professor at George Mason University in the Shah School of Policy and Government where she directs the Terrorism, Transnational Crime and Corruption Center that she founded. A leading expert on the relationship among terrorism, organized crime and corruption, as well as human trafficking, transnational crime and terrorism, with a particular focus on the Soviet Union. She also specializes in illicit financial flows and money laundering, and is the author of Dirty Entanglements, Corruption, Crime and Terrorism, and Dark Commerce, How a New Illicit Economy is Threatening Our Future. Then we'll look into the urban warfare facing the Russian invaders and the civilian population of Ukraine, who are increasingly Putin's targets to bomb them out, starve them out, and have them flee into neighboring countries via a corridor the Russians will create to make it easier to control what is left of the population while burdening Western Europe with a refugee problem. Joining us is Thomas Mikaitis, a professor of history at DePaul University who has taught counterterrorism courses for the past 13 years at venues around the world as part of the U.S. Department of Defense's Counterterrorism Fellowship Program. He's the author of six books including New Terrorism, Myths and Reality, Violent Extremists Understanding the Domestic and International Terrorist Threat, and Iraq and the Challenge of Counterinsurgency. We will discuss his article at The Hill, A Ukrainian Insurgency Could Drain Russia's Resources and Will. Then finally, we will examine the court filing by the January 6th committee indicating they are building a case of criminal collusion to obstruct the functioning of government between Trump and his lawyer, John Eastman, in trying to get Vice President Pence to stop the certification of Biden's victory. Joining us is Harry Littman, and we will discuss how engaging in criminal activity voids Eastman's argument of lawyer-client privilege in protecting the documents he's refusing to hand over to the committee. A former United States Attorney and Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Justice Department, Harry is now a Professor of Political Science at the University of California, San Diego, and the executive producer and host of the Talking Feds podcast and a legal affairs columnist at the Los Angeles Times. And before we go to our first guest, since we are now fully independent, your support for this program is vital to keep us online and on a growing number of radio stations across the country. And while we operate on a low budget, we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org to help ensure that background briefing is sustainable into the future so that we can continue to provide a daily news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests, both at home and abroad. And for those listeners who have issues with PayPal, we now have made it easier to donate simply by credit card. So if you are in a position to give support, or have been meaning to but have been unable, please go to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. 
And joining us now is Dr. Louise Shelley, who's the Omar L. and Nancy Hurst Endowed Chair and the University Professor at George Mason University in the Shah School of Policy and Government, where she directs the Terrorism, Transnational Crime and Corruption Center that she founded. She is a leading expert on the relationship among terrorism, organized crime and corruption, as well as human trafficking, transnational crime and terrorism, with a particular focus on the former Soviet Union. She also specializes in illicit financial flows and money laundering and is the author of Dirty Entanglements, Corruption, Crime and Terrorism and Dark Commerce, How a New Illicit Economy is Threatening Our Future. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Louise Shelley. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And today, the White House announced increased sanctions on Russian oligarchs and their families, including Dmitry Peskov, uh, President Putin's press spokesperson, and also Usmanov, uh, whose super yacht apparently has been seized in Germany where it's being repaired, although there's some ambiguity about that. But as Putin doubles down. Apparently, in a conversation with uh, French President Macron, he made it clear that he's continuing the military offensive and it's going as planned and it's going to get worse. So he's going to really start pounding the civilian population and he'll offer them a humanitarian corridor and basically drive people out into Poland where at least a million refugees have already left Ukraine. So do you think that as the West and American audience watches helplessly as as Ukrainian civilians are slaughtered and their towns and homes and cities are leveled into rubble. Does that make sanctions the only kind of palliative we have? Because I've often thought that sanctions are, are often the favorite tool in the absence of being able to do anything more. I think the, the question is how much are the Americans ready for war or intervention? And there doesn't seem to be a sense yet that the American population is ready for this, though I think they're watching in just horror at what is going on. Um, But I think the sanctions have been oversold in what they can do because we don't know enough about where the, the money is and we don't have rapid tools to really go after it. And so some of the sanctions, such as those on the central bank, um, may be very effective in keeping Russia out of the SWIFT system, but some of these others are are much longer duration and having any impact. Well, obviously the American public, quite rightly, don't want a war with Russia because that's a nuclear war. But short of that, do you think that Anything so far is getting Putin's attention? I don't think there's much that's getting Putin's attention. Putin is incredibly isolated. He's been isolated for almost the last two years of the COVID pandemic. And furthermore, he has so long been in power and absolute power corrupts absolutely that he is not open to advisors, and he doesn't have advisors who will talk to him very frankly. So given that these sanctions are announced today by the White House, including visa restrictions on 19 Russian oligarchs and 47 family members who will be you know, restricted, they won't be able to come to the United States, and 
in his State of the Union address, President Biden talked about going after their homes and yachts and mansions, etc. So, uh, and I think he said something like, we're coming after your, your ill-gotten gains. How much, Louise Shelley, do you think there is a, is there a difference between Putin's favorite oligarchs at home, the Siloviki surrounding him and others, and these more publicized oligarchs abroad with their yachts on the south of France and owning football clubs like Chelsea, etc., in the UK. Is Putin that close to those people? Not, not as much as he used to be. Before the pandemic, several years before, he used to meet with the oligarchs and keep them in line. But that has not been apparent lately. But some of the people who've been sanctioned today are very close to Putin, like the Rotenbergs, and they hold his funds. So they are, um, you know, they're listed as being extremely rich people, but how much of it is really theirs and how much is Putin's is not clear. But they've gotten after his personal inner circle today. So is there anybody amongst the closer ones at home that he can affect? If you saw the National Security Council meeting a week or so ago, it was pretty alarming how his top intelligence and military officials were quaking in fear before them. It's sort of reminiscent of Stalin's days. So is there any evidence that you could influence those kind of people, the inner circle, with sanctions? I think there's a a combination effect that you need to think about, is that sanctions is one tool that the West has, but also this military strategy has not gone the way it's supposed to. And so soon there are going to be many, unfortunately, very young soldiers who are returning in body bags. And one of the few civil society organizations that's left in Russia has been the Soldiers' Mothers Organization. And and the word is getting out to them and the Ukrainians are being extremely clever in posting information on the young soldiers who've been captured, who've been killed. And so we're looking at several things going on on at the same time, the sanctions on the rich, the, the death toll on the ordinary citizen, and the absolute crash and standard of living of the Russians who have put up with Putin for a long time because he provided them a much better standard of living. It doesn't mean that things are going to collapse in a month or two, but his situation is less stable in the coming months or coming year. And again, I'm speaking with Dr. Louise Shelley, the Omar Earl and Nancy Hurst Endowed Chair and a university professor at George Mason University in the Shah School of Policy and Government, where she directs the Terrorism, Transnational Crime and and Corruption Center that she founded. She's a leading expert on the relationship amongst terrorism, organized crime and corruption, as well as human trafficking, transnational crime and terrorism, with a particular focus on the former Soviet Union. She also specializes in illicit financial flows and money laundering and is the author of Dirty Entanglements, Corruption, Crime and Terrorism and Dark Commerce, How a New Illicit Economy is Threatening Our Future. But he may be able to not pacify the entire country but take over the the main areas. He's, He's already got what he wanted, which is a land corridor from the Donbass through to Crimea, and he 
presumably it eventually will be able to take Kharkiv and Kiev. I don't know quite how long that battle will go. But if he's has, in quote, some form of success, do you think that could end? We still don't know what his end game is, except, to, as he said, to denazify the country, which, of course, is an absurd piece of propaganda. I don't think there's a success for Putin in this. And that's that's part of the problem. And there's he didn't come into this thinking that he'd lose or and he didn't have a plan for an end game. But Ukraine has a long history of resistance and there is additional arms being shipped from Western Europe. And even if Putin managed and his forces managed to take over some of the largest cities, this is not going to be easy. This is not coming in and and running a a pacification campaign as he as he thought, or maybe in his own delusion that these four troops that he was sending in were actually going to be welcomed. So the vice is tightening in certain ways and unpredictable ways. Well, I saw video footage today, Louise Shelley. There's been a crackdown on, on demonstrations across Russia and, and in Moscow. An elderly grandmother was holding up signs and these huge kind of almost like something out of Star Wars, these Russian security people in full uniforms and visors. And as I say, they looked like the stormtroopers in Star Wars, hauling her off, you know, it... It's, it was, it's tragic how pervasive the propaganda is in Russia and how I wonder if the United States government can do more to get the real information to the Russian people. Uh, particularly, my understanding is, and I spoke the other day with Nina Khrushcheva, the granddaughter of, of Khrushchev, and you know, and I said they're being sold a bill of goods, and she said, well, look, we, they know it. They know it. So how much do they know about how their country's been looted by Putin and his cronies? Many people know. I'm not sure that the man in the street, but people in, in Russia have an understanding that there is this small, enormously wealthy elite that has taken just enormous resources out of the country. And I think Russia is really anomalous in the world of how much there has been a concentration of wealth in a small number of people, and that those small number of people have chosen to take it out of the country. I mean, this has been a process that's been going on since I started studying organized crime in, in Russia. It's been going on since the mid-1990s, maybe even earlier, but on a massive scale. And so... Every, everybody knows about this, and the and life is hard, and it is getting harder. So they're not innocent about this, and one isn't seeing some great patriotism. I mean, considering that we've had years now of repression of human rights movements, of shutdowns of human rights movements, the level of resistance one's seeing, not just of this babushka, this grandmother that you described, but of people who are signing surveys, who are going out to protest, not just in the major cities, but elsewhere in Russia, is really quite surprising 
in terms of the certainty that they are going to face um, a, a very strong reaction. And I think there's one other piece that nobody's talking about, which is an area that I and my colleagues at TRAC have done research on, which is the phenomenon of corporate rating. And corporate rating is the practice in which well-connected oligarchs and political people raid the businesses of smaller, but sometimes not even such smaller businesses, and seize them. Sometimes these businesses may have a quarter of a billion to half a billion dollars of assets, and they lose them. And what's more, the people who are um, whose assets are being seized are most often, under this modus operandi of corporate raiding, put in, in jail or prison while this raid is going on. And official Russian statistics state that um, 200,000 people were the last figures that were given. So 200,000 businessmen, the future, the entrepreneurship of Russia, have lost their businesses and been exposed to the abuses and the terrible conditions in the Russian justice system. So there's also that other piece that nobody's talking about, of how these oligarchs and the political elite have jeopardized the entrepreneurship of Russia and have turned what should be this functioning economic uh, success stories into people who are very much opposed and victimized by the regime. And they're a group that needs to be watched that's no one, I've heard no one mention in any of the discussions this week. Well, you're describing the mafia tactics, and I guess it is a mafia state, but it's a mafia state with nuclear weapons, which is something we've never had in geopolitics before. But it's not exactly a mafia state, because these reprisals against the businessmen are carried out by government officials. Right. And so, yes, early on, these reprisals and the oligarchs built their fortunes by using real, like, mafiosi. But now, these reprisals are done by police and law enforcement and the courts. And because it's done by officialdom, think of what that does to the people whose lives are being destroyed and how they think about the government structure. So let's talk a little bit about our complicity in as much as a lot of oligarchs' money has come over here. And when the Soviet Union was collapsing in the late 80s, early 90s, enormous amount of, of money was stolen from the Soviet Treasury by a lot of mostly KGB officials. They parked a lot of it in the United States. They bought a lot of properties in Trump Tower and other Trump properties. So that kind of complicity... Is there any way to sort of name and shame Americans who have gone along with the kind of the wealth protection industry, as it's often referred to? I think it's it also is referred to as the enablers. And recently in comments that I submitted to FinCEN on the latest legislation on uh, regulations on money laundering into real estate, I said that we need to go after these enablers. Um, and that there has not been enough to, to go after the real estate agents that have sold this property, the lawyers that have received the money, 
in you know, lawyers' accounts, the people who've set up the front companies that have allowed these you know, rich Russians, I can't even call them rich, they're mega rich Russians, to hide behind companies where their identities are hidden or nested companies that make it even harder to find them. So there's a whole industry that has supported this, whole industry that sues people that dare to disclose this activity. That's a special problem in the UK with their libel laws. And then there's large public relations firms that help build these individuals' reputations and sell them through their philanthropy or their reputation washing, as one could say. So on Wednesday, Attorney General Merrick Allen announced that the Department of Justice is setting up a klepto-capture task force. Is that filling in some of the, the loopholes? It is, but there needs to be much more coordination with FinCEN, which I haven't seen in the announcement, which is... And FinCEN, just for the benefit of the audience, is the Financial Crimes Center at the Department of Treasury. It's a small unit, but it's very, very important. Yes. And also, I think there needs to be much more coordination with civil society, with journalists who've been unmasking this. It needs to be a whole-of-society approach and a coordination on this. And next Tuesday at TRAC, we're going to have a top specialist on on Russian law talk on this task force. And what about the connections with former President Trump? And he's about, well, he's not the only person out there praising Putin, but it's pretty, pretty extraordinary to have a former president of the United States praising Putin as, as he's slaughtering his neighbors. So do you think that there's any way to sort of connect the dots? Because there's been so much, as I say, apparent money laundering going on, not just through Trump's properties in terms of Russians buying condos, but also earlier in in the casinos in Atlantic City. So the record is pretty long. Uh, A lot of it's in counterintelligence at the FBI, but Mueller never really looked into this. Is anybody really going to look into this? Because I find it very troubling that the ostensible leader of the of one of the two parties in this country, the Republican Party, Donald Trump, is making a political comeback, and he is so clearly allied to Putin, particularly now when the evidence is so manifest that this man is sadistic, brutal, and may even be deranged. I... I mean, these are really complex questions, which I think we've never really, as you say, gotten to the bottom of. And, you know, what went on in the meetings that Putin had with Trump that we never know what happened when they were in the room together? And what has happened as 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 NATO got weakened under Trump? There, There's so much to be looked at. And I think there have been, you know, a couple books that that are that are good that have raised some of these issues but i think in light of what has happened in the last week and the last months that this has been under preparation we need to do a lot more thinking and looking at evidence that wasn't looked at previously well one of the things we could look at is the impeachment of Donald Trump over his phone call with Zelensky where he tried to shake him down to get dirt on 
Biden and what he was doing in that phone call that led to his impeachment was withholding the Javelin anti-tank missiles in order to get some political hurt on Biden. And at this moment, we're sort of shipping in as many Javelins and Stinger missiles as we can, and they're critical weapons for the Ukrainians up against this massive tide of Russian armor. So to my mind, that is a pretty stark reminder of what the issues are here. I think it's not just... I think there also needs to be much more analysis of what happened with Manafort and the role that he assumed with Ukraine. So there, there's a lot more that we don't know. But what the point that you're making is absolutely crucial, is that these javelins that have been so effective as a weapon in the last week, I mean, they're, they're not the most sophisticated of weapons, but if they had been there earlier, in the time where the Ukrainian government was asking Trump for more military aid so that people could have been trained, that these weapons could have been used and by, by people who'd had experience and training in them, things might be unraveling, or I should say, might be occur, um, transpiring differently this week. Though the, the Ukrainians have risen to the challenge with such enormous courage, bravery, and fortitude that it's, you know, um, amazing. That's all I can say. Well, Dr. Louise Shelley, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Louise Shelley, who's the Omar L. and Nancy Hurst Endowed Chair and a university professor at George Mason University in the Shah School of Policy and Government, where she directs the Terrorism, Transnational Crime and Corruption Center that she founded. She's a leading expert on the relationship amongst terrorism, organized crime and corruption, as well as human trafficking, transnational crime and terrorism, with a particular focus on the former Soviet Union. And she also specializes in illicit financial flows and money laundering, and is the author of Dirty Entanglements, Corruption, Crime and Terrorism, and Dark commerce, how a new illicit economy is threatening our future. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the urban warfare facing the Russian invaders and the civilian population of Ukraine who are increasingly Putin's targets. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. Joining us now, Thomas Mikaitis, who's a professor of history at DePaul University, who has taught counterterrorism courses for the past 13 years at venues around the world as part of the U.S. Department of Defense Counterterrorism Fellowship Program. He is the author of six books, including New Terrorism, Myths and Reality, Violent Extremists, Understanding the Domestic and International Terrorist Threat, and Iraq and the Challenge of Counterinsurgency. And he has an article at The Hill, A Ukrainian Insurgency Could Drain Russia's Resources and Will. Welcome to Background Briefing, Thomas Mikaitis. Thank you. So, Tom, apparently in the phone conversation that uh, France's President Macron had with Putin trying to deal with this 
tragedy in Ukraine and bring an end to this suffering and slaughter. Putin said, no, it's going to get a lot worse. So that means, of course, a lot more Ukrainian civilians will die and civilian areas will be pounded into rubble. Mm -hmm. And it's already happening, as we see on television. And he's captured, uh, the Russians have captured one city in the south, uh, Kurzon, and they now have the port city of Odessa under siege, as well as Kiev and uh, Kharkiv and uh, a number of other cities as well. And apparently there are reports from Mariupol uh, on the Sea of Azov that the Russian soldiers are pulling civilians out of buildings and executing them. So it's not just that Putin is a sociopath. I mean, there are some pretty brutal people within the military. Uh, mm-hmm. There's also a lot of scared young conscripts who don't want to fight and have been lied to. So what do you think is going to happen here? Is this just going to turn into the same kind of slaughter that happened when Putin flattened uh, Grozny in the Chechen war? That is my fear. I think what happened is that Putin seriously miscalculated when he went in light uh, a week ago, figuring that the Ukrainian, that the country was divided, that resistance would quickly collapse, that just the fear of a Russian onslaught would be sufficient. Um, that clearly didn't work, and the Russians got a bit of a bloody nose. So then what they've done is apparently revert to the style of warfare that uh, goes all the way back to the Soviets, which is massive bombardment um, followed by you know the incursions by ground forces and so on. Um, whether they flatten the cities, I don't know, but there's already widespread destruction. And the other disturbing thing is that, of course, for Putin now, it merely isn't merely about Ukraine. It's about winning and about preserving his position and his status and in a bizarre sort of way, his ego. I mean, he's invested a great deal in this now. So to back down would be a, to him an unacceptable loss of faith. Um, it, it's hard to know reports coming out of war zones about summary executions, things like that are are always problematic, um, but there's no question that the shelling has become less discriminate and that it is inflicting civilian casualties as well as creating an enormous refugee crisis. So this talk of a humanitarian corridor, but is there any kind of corridor out for civilians? Um, yeah, it does. It seems as though the Russians are not interfering with the railway line from Kiev toward Lvov in the west and they're from there to the Polish border. Um, people are also escaping into uh, Slovakia and Romania. Um, so, you know, that actually can, can, serve their, can serve their purpose. We saw that in the, in the Bosnia, at the end of the Bosnian War when the Croats recaptured the Kraina, they deliberately created escape corridors because they were perfectly happy, in fact, actually preferred that the Serbians living in those areas would just simply flee. They weren't terribly interested in, in harming them. Um, so I don't know if that's the case here, but so far there does not appear to be any interference with evacuations. So do we have a reading on whether the Russian troops and their commanders will be happy conducting this slaughter? Will there yeah. be a breakdown in morale? It's, I think you, you described it quite well. Among the young conscripts and a, a significant part of the, the army and are not really even supposed to be there, according to Russian law, which doesn't mean much anymore. You're supposed to agree to sign a contract to become a, 
a regular rather than a, uh, than a than a conscript. You're not supposed to be deployed abroad, but of course Putin doesn't consider this abroad. So I think among those units, there is significant uh, low morale, and I think there's probably general unhappiness among rank and file in the Russian army, but Putin has always had a core of thugs he can rely on. I don't know to what extent they're represented in the armed forces, um, but um, he's gone back, they've gone back to the kind of, you know, kind of tactics they, they did use in the Chechen war. How far that will go, I don't know. There is a huge difference, um, and that is the ability of the West to get weapons through an open border um, Stinger uh, anti-aircraft missiles and Javelin anti-tank missiles apparently are proving quite effective. They're one of the things that ushered, particularly the uh, Stingers, helped usher the Soviets out of Afghanistan in the late 1980s. And that's what could be a protracted bleeding sore for Russia um, in the coming um, weeks, months, and, and perhaps even longer. And again, I'm speaking with Thomas McCartis, who's a professor of history at DePaul University, who has taught counterterrorism courses for the past 13 years at venues around the world as part of the U.S. Department of Defense Counterterrorism Fellowship Program. He's the author of six books, including New Terrorism, Myths and Reality, Violent Extremists, Understanding the Domestic and International Terrorist Threat, and Iraq and the Challenge of Counterinsurgency. And he has an article at the Hill, a Ukrainian insurgency could drain Russia's resources and will. So Kharkiv is so close to the border that it seems likely that it would fall. And I'm not sure how people are doing there in terms of, I Mm -hmm. think it's under siege and surrounded. Of course, when you cut off utilities and water, food, that is a weapon of war and a very effective one. I imagine... The same thing will happen in Kiev as well. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, how are the Russians going to proceed with house-to-house, street-to-street fighting? That's yeah. always, isn't that always considered in the military doctrine uh, the last place you want to be? Even And yeah. tanks are useless and armor is useless in those situations. Exactly right. I've, I've been to Kiev on a number of occasions, and it is a sprawling city with an ancient, uh, you know, historic district that so far doesn't appear to have been hit or hit too hard. Um, but exactly right. Um, all of the advantages of a high power of a, you know, a high tech maneuver warfare army are largely neutralized by an urban environment. We found that out the hard way when we got to Baghdad. We got there in a matter of weeks, and it was a a stunningly rapid advance. And then, of course, Americans driving Bradley fighting vehicles and M1A tanks quickly could do nothing but sit back and watch looters, uh, you know, ransack buildings because the tanks aren't any good for that kind of thing. So, and, and given that a large section of the Ukrainian population is civilians who've taken up arms and so on, and you've got a brewery making Molotov cocktails, you've got steel workers erecting uh, makeshift barriers on their own without direction from the center, villagers cutting down logs to block roads, the Russians could have a very hard time. Now, as I said in the article, the big worry is is, uh, Putin has a well-deserved reputation for ruthlessness. So it will not be above, it would not be um, unheard of that he would carry out reprisals against the civilian population. And as you indicated, that could be happening at Maripol. We don't know uh, for sure. Um, but, you know, um, it, is a, it is a way to squelch resistance. And so, you know, it, 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 
the only certainty is that the Ukrainian people are in for a long period of suffering. So is there any chance that the world, I mean, the world will see this as happening? Uh, yeah. The Russian people won't because they have basically propaganda uh, instead of media. Yeah. Um, and he shut down Echo Moscow and alternative media, what's little of its left. So is there any way to influence the Russian people? Because they don't well, want this war. They don't, they don't know... And they yeah. and they certainly wouldn't approve. I mean, you know, everybody talks about when the body bag's coming home, things will change. Well, I don't know about that, whether that's even happening and whether Putin can somehow secretly bury the dead. But is there any way that the Russian people can find out what's really happening? I think they do to some degree if they choose to. But the issue is, you know, look, right here in the United States, we've seen that a significant segment of the population... Uh, gets their information from echo chambers. They go to places which re re uh, reaffirm what they already believe. So that happens in even open, free and open societies like ours. Um, but they, well, there's too many Russian expats. There are too many people's uh, people with contact to the outside, and too many ways for news to come in for to completely shut information off. So um, you know, it's they, and the real bite would come, of course, when their standard of living declines, which is. And Putin has increased somewhat, not necessarily because of him, just because times have gotten better. Um, but now that things are stagnant, and now with all these sanctions and everything else, and the loss of life, um, which they're estimating is already around 2,000. We lost 2,500 in the entire 25 years, in, in 20 years or more in, in um, Afghanistan. So it's possible but he's pretty deeply entrenched in power. I think the one group that really matters are the oligarchs. Uh, if they make a decision that he is ultimately bad for business, um, that is that is the one thing that he might have to pay serious attention to. Well, I, I'm not sure that he that he has a lot of affection for the oligarchs abroad. I mean, he certainly yeah. the ones at home that work with him. So do you really think that he cares about Abramoff and Chelsea's football team? And I mean, Sessions' yeah. yacht just got seized by the French and Usmanov's big, biggest yacht in the world, apparently, just got seized in Germany. I mean, it, it, wouldn't Putin be really upset when they seized the 160 billion of his at, abroad? But that's hard to find because he has it through different cutouts, like the, yeah. uh, his, his, the twins, his buddies from Petersburg. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it's hard to know. And the other thing that makes all of this both confusing and upsetting is he's very much isolated right now. So it's hard to know who he's listening to, except a very tight inner circle. Um, and he had a kind of icy exchange with uh, one of his own ministers. Um, and you see all these pictures of him being, you know, 20, 20 feet or more away from people. Um, he's apparently become quite paranoid. He's very worried about COVID and everything else. So the fear is, you know, how is he? has he lost touch with reality? In one sense, the Ukraine invasion does fit into a larger pattern. I saw unfolding as far back as 2004 when I visited and did some lecturing in the Baltics, um, where he's trying to use Russian minorities to rebuild some semblance of the Soviet empire, at least create a buffer zone. Um, but he always proceeded more cautiously, um, you know, limited incursions, expanding influence here, using Russian minorities, 
Um, he's never, even in Georgia in 2008, when he invaded, he did not take a sledgehammer to the place. He was determined to send a message um, and uh, to weaken it and so on. But he had not gone into this full annexation mode. This is this is truly exceptional, and um, it it raises broader concerns. Well, the Ukrainians, in terms of casualties, they're saying that there have been over 6,000 Russian dead, and I don't know that they've admitted to it, but there's some reports saying that there's been about 10,000 Ukrainian deaths uh, in terms of the military. Yeah. Um, so it's hard to know exactly you know, how many Russians are dying, but do you think Putin can get around the body bags coming home? I mean... Well, yeah, I mean, it depends on the degree to which he can maintain support. I mean, even even during a point in the Iraq war, um, the Bush administration was careful not to allow photographing um, of, of caskets coming into Dover. Now, part of that was a respect thing, which I, I understand and agree with. On the other hand, I think there there was at one point I read some concern about how of the optics. Now, in a, in a country like his, he can do that. But remember, you know, that every person who is killed is somebody's son, brother, husband, you know, father, whatever. And you can't hide their loss from all those people. And, you know, that is a way of magnifying. Um, as far as casualty figures, both the Russian and Ukrainian estimates should be taken with a grain of salt. Um, I rely on things from, let's say, British and American intelligence um, and monitoring groups who make more cautious and probably closer to accurate uh, estimates. But it, there's no way to know for sure um, what the death toll is in any war, and especially one like this. Well, what about the civilian death toll? I mean, that's that'll be the key, won't it? And that's going yes. to go yeah. up exponentially as Putin pounds these uh, urban centers. Yeah, exactly right. Although so far, um, again, from my experience in many places in Eastern Europe, including Kiev, um, many people live in um, these large Soviet-era apartment blocks um, that, that are not only huge and sprawling, are not very well built. Um, and so, um, you know, the damage is, is likely to be more extreme. Um, so far, they seem to have been evacuated. The casualties are worrisome and high, but we don't have exact numbers. The other worry, if he moves in and uses uh, thermobaric vacuum bombs, which were used against uh, Grozny, um, you're going to see mass casualty events uh, like we haven't seen before. Um, so the real question is, um, you know, how, how far is this going to proceed? I mean, the main purpose of targeting civilians is to break their morale and get them to give up. That does not appear to be working, um, but the, the, the suffering is, is, is of course, uh, is of course going to going to increase, and that's going to. It's there's just no really good outcomes I can see here. Um, it's just a question of uh, the best of least desirable ones. So, just in the last couple of minutes, then, Tom Mercatus. Already in, in, in Kurzon, which the Russians have taken, uh, they have curfews and uh, mm -hmm. they seem to be shutting people down. And can they do that countrywide, or at least in the areas that they've captured? Can they really suppress the people, control them? Of course, they've got the leverage of food and water and, and utilities, etc. So it's really the question is can this force occupy the country? And stabilize it, it, it. it can, but it will take many more troops to occupy and hold in the face of determined resistance, or even in the in the presence of non-cooperation. 
um, you know, it, it's not it's not going to be possible for the Ukrainians to oust the Russians. Um, the real question is, can it can it can the resistance, can an insurgency in combination with sanctions and other pressures make the cost of continuing the war unacceptably high? Um, you know, and to some degree that in a much smaller and less costly scale was the calculus of withdrawing from Afghanistan. Could we have stayed there? Could we have continued the fight? Sure, we could have done it indefinitely. But to what end and at what cost? Um, and that becomes the issue. Now, Ukraine is a much bigger prize. It was part of the big three in the old Soviet Union, along with Belarus and Russia itself. Um, so the stakes here are much higher. And as I said, Putin's not going to give up. So I would expect within a week, two, maybe a little longer, um, the country will be in, predominantly in Russian hands. You know, I, I hate most of my own conclusions, especially this one, but I, I just don't see any other way to read the tea leaves. Well, Tom Akadis, I thank you for joining us here today. Happy to do it. And again, I'm speaking with Thomas McCartis, who's a professor of history at DePaul University, who has taught counterterrorism courses for the last 13 years at venues around the world as part of the U.S. Department of Defense's Counterterrorism Fellowship Program. He's the author of six books, including New Terrorism, Myths and Reality, Violent Extremists, Understanding the Domestic and International Terrorist Threat, and Iraq and the Challenge of Counterinsurgency. And he has an article at The Hill a Ukrainian insurgency could drain Russia's resources and will. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the court filing by the January 6th committee indicating they are building a case of criminal collusion to obstruct the functioning of government between Trump and his lawyer, John Eastman. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Harry Littman, a former U.S. attorney and deputy assistant attorney general in the Justice Department. He's now a professor of political science at the University of California, San Diego, and the executive producer and host of the Talking Feds podcast and a legal affairs columnist at the Los Angeles Times. Welcome to Background Briefing, Harry Littman. Thank you, Ian. Always good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And this court filing on Wednesday is apparently quite explosive. The January 6th committee, well, this is what puzzles me, Harry. We seem to know a lot about what's in this email exchange between Greg Jacobs, the top lawyer for then Vice President Mike Pence, and John Eastman, the lawyer who was working for then President Donald Trump. And he was trying to basically give legal justification for and a coup attempt on Trump's part. So we know about the emails. So what was the filing with the court? Is it basically that Eastman is claiming lawyer-client privilege uh, with Trump, so therefore you can't get hold of these emails uh, or you can't use them in court? But we seem to know about the emails themselves. So clear that up for me, if you will. Sure. First, you're right. We do know about them, and it's a pretty good illustration. We see out front 
the conflicts and public battles between people who aren't cooperating, but there's some four or 500, I presume Jacob's among them, who are cooperating, giving them information. And this brief, this filing included just some snippets, but very good ones, basically tending to show that Trump was told in no uncertain terms that he has no claim no to stand on whatsoever. And that supports the criminal um, inference because it shows he doesn't have innocent intent. He knows what he's doing is deceitful. But here's the filing. So Eastman, as you know, is the architect of this cuckoo theory that would have Pence uh, exercise unconstitutional authority and try to delay things. Eastman is called to testify. He takes the fifth as he's done. And they and so that's fine. And then they say, give us the documents. And now he interposes a claim of attorney-client privilege, in fact, sues himself to uh, force that claim. And the response is what came in yesterday to his claim of attorney-client privilege. And the Congress, the 1-6 committee says three things. First, it says, you don't have attorney-client situation here. You you have to have the relationship. We don't even know you're acting as his attorney, even if you were. And second, we don't know that this is in the service of getting legal advice, which it needs to be, et cetera. Then finally, and here's the explosive part, third, even if it did, and even if it were, the court shouldn't permit it because of the crime fraud exception, which says if someone's claiming attorney-client privilege, but the client here, one former President Donald Trump, is actually uh, using it to shield or effectuate a crime, you cannot have attorney-client privilege. So their third submission is that. That is pretty ballistic. I mean, sort of akin to an impeachment, right? They're saying he, we, we've got the goods on him for at least two federal crimes, but they are saying it in the context of an argument to the court, hey, don't let him claim attorney-client privilege. It's one of three. The other two are strong also, and you can really, I, I think the court will, in fact, find no attorney-client privilege, but might rely on the first two. If it relies on the third, then the court will endorse that theory. But so that's how it comes to be as part of a normal kind of fight over getting documents that the 1-6 committee uh, throws the thunderbolt of saying, we think there's reason to charge Trump with two important federal crimes. So these email exchanges, they began on January the 5th, and on January the 6th, Greg Jacobs, then the top lawyer for Vice President Pence, says to John Eastman, he wrote to him saying, and thanks to your bullshit, we are now under siege, meaning the Capitol itself on right. January the 6th. So if the committee already has Greg Jacobs' emails with Eastman, presumably what they want then is to break that kind of legal fiction that Eastman's exchanges with Trump are privileged. Is that what's going on? Yes, although it's not just so the Jacobs thing's important. Remember, even if, after it's happening, Eastman is haranguing him saying, uh, you know, it's all your fault. And then eventually, actually, Eastman says, I know you're right. There's no claim here, but it's so hard once he, Donald Trump, gets his mind around something. But they're looking for 11,000 emails, Ian, that date from January 6th to January 2nd, excuse me, to January 6th. That's an example of one, and it's a pretty volatile example, 
But everything else that Eastman is doing over those days and with the support of Trump, and remember what the committee is saying is there's reason to think there's a conspiracy that includes Eastman and Trump. That's what the committee wants to see. So we don't know exactly what's there, and they have good reason for wanting it, even if they have it duplicated in some different pockets here and there. Well, there's quite a bit of, of Eastman on the record, thanks to a friend of mine, Lauren Windsor, who got him on tape at, some, I think it was some sort of banquet for the Claremont Institute that Eastman's a part of, but he admits... Was on, a part of. He's been fired, I think. He, he was fired, yeah. Well, some Maybe they were sort of honoring him or, you know, in, <laughs> on the way out the door. But he was boasting about what he did and going after Pence for buckling and all of this stuff. He, he's absolutely the worst witness. If he's that garrulous, if you got him on the stand, he'd be devastating. But hasn't he pleaded the fifth before the uh, committee? He has. So for his test, they called him and he pleaded it hundreds of times to every single question. So for the testimony, you're right, he would be tied up in knots, but we won't see it. So this is just about the documents. That's why he's not trying to claim. It's very hard, uh, Ian, to claim Fifth Amendment privilege over production of documents. It has to be that the actual production incriminates you and that hardly ever happens. So, right, it's now all about the documents and what they show. And you're 100% right. He's exactly in the middle. He comes out of nowhere. It's not even clear, by the way, he's ever the, um, Trump's lawyer, but he comes out of nowhere because any port in a storm for Trump. And he's someone who is willing to say this completely unconstitutional theory about Pence's powers that he later recants. But so it's about the documents and not his... Uh, testimony and the reason they want them. I mean, yes, they could. He could be charged. And incidentally, yesterday also he was referred to bar proceedings uh, in in his state of California. He may lose his license, but it really goes to Trump and Trump's knowledge. It's clear that the um, proceedings were impeded, right? And that's you know, or that they got in the way of a U.S. function. Those are the you know, two of the important elements. But now it comes down to would Trump be able to make some claim? Ah, I really thought I won. And uh, if he would try to make such a claim, emails like this. Uh, and by the way, this is uh, Bill Barr's book that just came out today. He's interviewed on NBC News saying the same thing, where people look him in the eye and say, you don't have a leg to stand on, Mr. President, makes it very hard for Trump to be able to make that claim. So that's where this all comes in. It's to, by way of showing that Trump is not just impeding the uh, proceeding, but doing it corruptly, doing it knowing that it's not legally based, and that's what makes it corrupt and criminal. So Barr is, in this case, the A-team telling the truth for a change, and where would you put Eastman? I mean, he's scraping the bottom of the barrel with Rudy Giuliani and that ridiculous Sidney Powell woman. And Eastman seems to be there along with that. Yeah, How? I think so. I think at the bottom level is those three, Jeff Clark, 
who was the guy who tried to have the coup in the Justice Department. The people, in other words, who when everyone knew it was complete crap, were willing to step forward and not speak truth to power, speak lies to power as a way of cozying up to the soon-to-be former president. So, yeah, this these guys, and, and remember here what the committee has said is, there's evidence of a conspiracy and who are you need more than one to tango. And the second one here would be Eastman, just as the um, district court judge 10 days ago or so found there was evidence of a conspiracy between Trump and the three percenters or, you know, some of the insurrectionists. It's, you know, who made the agreement. So, um, yeah, I, I got to agree with you. He does have these weird recantations at different points, which I think only make him look worse because he tries to say, oh, I, I, you know, I was just kind of talking out loud and, and you know, um, developing a, a, a poor legal theory. But I think he, Sidney Powell, Rudy Giuliani, Jeff Clark, birds of a feather, and, um, you know, those feathers, they are now denuded, I think, as the evidence is coming out. But just in closing, Harry, though, Eastman wasn't just in the Oval Office coming up with these ridiculous theories, which were music to Trump's ears, and also meeting in the Willard Hotel on the night of January the 5th. Right. Now he's he was also there on the ellipse on January the 6th, Doing spoke, a kind of right? almost a keynote speech, I think it was, just before Giuliani went on, rousing the crowd to march on the Capitol. I agree. You know, we'll see what kind of accountability the Department of Justice, the laws of California, the civil, uh, you know, courts provide. But he is a bad actor who comes out of nowhere he, with a you know, fairly obscure resume, notwithstanding having been a clerk to Justice Thomas, and just makes trouble based on complete, whole-cloth, bogus legal theories that give Trump some comfort when no one else will. Bad guy. And yeah, if we're, if we're doing circles of behavior in the barrel or, or in hell or whatever it is, I, I agree, down near the bottom. So we can only hope that the law that he makes a mockery of will come back and bite him, right? That would, you know, yeah, I, I think that states it very well. You know, look, he, he and he's a lawyer. He knows what he's saying is wrong. On top of everything else, he's, you know, along with Giuliani and Powell and Clark, such a disservice to the legal industry that has independent duties of candor and you know things to the court and even the american people he not so much jeff clark and you know because he was the department of justice but we can only we can only hope and i do think the the people we've been mentioning i think their legal careers if nothing else are i think they're toast basically and they'll never have important roles in government maybe they go into some right-leaning you know institute where uh, some kind of dark money <laughs> permits them to earn a living. But, you know, I think they've been permanently discredited. And yes, it couldn't happen to nicer people. Well, Harry Lippman, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thanks, Ian. Good to be with you. And again, I've been speaking with Harry Lippman, as a former U.S. attorney and deputy assistant attorney general in the Justice Department. He's now a professor of political science at the University of California, San Diego, and the executive producer and host of the Talking Feds podcast and a legal affairs columnist at the Los Angeles Times. 
This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America Oh,